Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Worshippers, that was really beautiful. Um, amen. Okay, we are going to have a guest speaker named Heather Morgan, and she'll be broadcast up here, and we'll all be able to hear her, and it will be lovely, and all the people on Zoom will be even more a part of the service. <clears throat> um, at the end of Heather's sermon, there will be a time for Q&A. Uh, so while she's speaking, if you have questions that come up, that would be great. Um, when she's finished, uh, you could raise your hand or come up to the mic and ask. Um, and those of you on Zoom, you could type it into the chat. Uh, and so if, if there aren't questions, I will ask some I have prepared, but that is totally space for all of you. So when she's finished, please no, don't hesitate. Raise your hand. I could run up even and hear your question and repeat it back to Heather. But let me tell you a bit about Heather and what we can expect. Um, so I met Heather uh, through uh, a professor at Ambrose named Colin Toffemeyer. Um, she's a licensed pastor with the Christian Missionary Alliance, so I know there's some Alliance folks here. Yay. Uh, Heather is a queer, disabled pastor licensed in the Christian Missionary Alliance. She's currently studying disability theology uh, within her Master's of Divinity at Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto. Heather has a lifetime of lived experience as a physically disabled and neurodiverse woman, as well as living in a neurodiverse uh, partnership and parenting multiple children with disabilities. As well, she has more than two decades of professional experience walking alongside individuals with disabilities and their parents. Heather has passionately worked out her faith in the midst of her embodied reality for almost four decades and loves nothing more than to pull up a fresh seat at the table for a dear sibling in Christ. Hi, everyone. Um, before I get started, I just want to add one piece uh, to your wonderful ways of starting things and give a visual description of myself. This might be helpful for somebody who's listening on the podcast later on, and this might also be helpful for someone who is visually impaired. So I am a white woman. I have short brown hair with lots of speckled grays that I've earned every right for uh, and a plum colored sweater on today. I am reclining in a power tilt and recline wheelchair and there are some empty uh, alluring bookshelves behind me uh, in white that I'm very excited to keep filling with new textbooks. I got those for Christmas. So. Um, I'm not one of those people who's great at small talk. Uh, I, I'm also a life coach, among other things. And so one of the things I love to do is to ask people really revealing questions to help them get at the root of who they are and where God wants to start building out greater honesty and connections so that change and transformation becomes possible in their life. So are you all okay if I um, just sort of dive in the deep end with some questions to get us started tonight? For each of these, I'm going to invite you to sit with them in yourself. Maybe make some notes of what comes up for you uh, so that you can talk about it with someone you trust this afternoon, this evening, later this week. Some of these are vulnerable questions. So if this brings up anything for you, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to talk to someone safe today. But 
even though they're hard questions, and even though it's hard to be vulnerable, I'm going to ask them anyways, because I think they're such important questions. First question. When was the last time your body told you something really good? Maybe it told you how delicious your coffee smelled this morning or how happy it was to feel the endorphins running through you after your run today or how grateful your body was that you got to sleep in and wake up slowly this morning. I want you to stop and think about the last time your body told you something really wonderful. Second question. When was the last time your body asked you for something? Maybe it asked for a bathroom break or a glass of water, a chance to move and stretch or get outside. Maybe it asked you to stop and rest. Maybe it asked you to engage in something vigorous. I want you to remember the last time your body asked you for something. Now I want you to tune into your bodies and I want you to hear the answer from your bodies, not your minds to this next question. That last time your body asked you for something, how well did you listen? Now, what do you do that helps you to listen to your body? Are you a mindfulness kind of person? A silence and stillness person? Do you hear best from your body when you are resting or when you are working out? Do you have a regular time or times during the day when you check in with your body? Do you use something maybe like my Fitbit here to help, me keep, help you keep track of how you're doing with your body? Final question. Hardest question. What are you doing actively or passively right now in the midst of the stressors of your own life and exacerbated by the realities of COVID to separate yourself from your body? Are you starving it, numbing it, cutting it, filling it, ignoring it, degrading it, downplaying it, demeaning it? Hiding it, forcing it, pushing it, drugging it. These actions and responses to our bodies are so common in our society that we start to assume that this is just normal. But what if Christianity had a different story to tell about you and your body? What if Jesus had a different story? to tell about bodies in general. Today, I'm gonna to take some church history, a few passages of scriptures and some theology, and I'm gonna spend some time talking about what God has to say about bodies across the spectrum of what our society typically assigns as abilities. So this, once the screen uh, adjusts, this is Augustine. Now, Augustine is very much the Protestant church father. If there's one name from the early church fathers that most Protestants, evangelicals, Baptists know, it's Augustine's. 
That's because when the reformers went back to the early writings of the church, the work of Augustine was easy to find and made sense to their Western way of thinking about the world. The problem is that Augustine's work is full of ideas that fall under this category called Neoplatonism. I noticed that Michaela introduced you in the first week of this sermon series to the idea of Gnosticism, and we're going to go back and build on what she was talking about a couple of weeks ago. So as Michaela said, Gnosticism emphasizes this division and hierarchy between the mind and the body, that the mind is somehow superior to the body and the spirit somehow superior to our emotions. There's this idea in Gnosticism and its broader philosophical view of Neoplatonic thought of a perfect or idealized form. And although that perfect form is only available theoretically, the perfected form of the human in this construction is that of a mind released from the prison of the body to think esoteric, philosophical, and theological thoughts all day long. So for just one example, in his Confessions, Augustine states that priority goes to your spiritual creation rather than the physical order, however heavenly and full of light. In other words, no matter how majestic or powerful or able your physical body is, your spirit and your mind, they are the things that matter, not the body. These ideas seep in and through all of Augustine's writings, and they normalize the idea that the spirit and the mind are what matter, and that bodies are less than, that they are, that bodies are where sin is stored and enacted, and that the only solution to bodies is to punish them. Because Gnosticism and Neoplatonic thought remained really prominent in Western Europe over the centuries, the academics and theologians who first got excited about Augustine in the 16th and 17th centuries didn't question what was there. The height of meaning and purpose and virtue for these men was already found in their disconnection from their bodies and emotions and their over-reliance on their minds as academics and spirits as monastics. And so it was easy for them to simply accept these ideas. The problem is these ideas are really a form of syncretism. Now, syncretism is this fancy word for what happens when you mix ideas from two belief systems to form a new single belief system that didn't exist before. A lot of mission work is very mindful about the ways in which syncretism happens in places like Africa, South America, as the gospel is first preached in those continents. And yet they are much less aware in general of the ways in which we have historically developed syncretistic beliefs ourselves as Western Christians. Syncretistic beliefs around race, economic practices, and other cultural ideas or in fact, the ways we continue to develop and perpetuate syncretistic ideas today. In this case, Augustine, steeped in Neoplatonic thought before his conversion to Christianity, approached Christian scriptures from this intellectual framework and wove his ideas about his newfound faith tradition with and into and through his pre-existing belief system. Have you ever noticed, uh, we do this thing sometimes in, in the church world where someone famous becomes a Christian and then we, we kind of 
push them straight to the top in terms of, of uh, stage and uh, book deals and all the rest of it, right? I, I think it's important to realize that Augustine is one of those baby Christians who gets a platform way before he's had a chance to done the, do the long-term work necessary of discipleship and faith formation. And although he's really excited about being a Christian and about telling his testimony and his story, he just hasn't necessarily worked out all the details of just how much Jesus is meant to overturn in our lives. Augustine was well known enough in his day as a philosopher that when he became a Christian, in part through his friendship with a bishop, he rapidly got pulled into a power struggle between the Western and Eastern church at the time. And he got elevated almost straight to the position of bishop himself, just months after becoming a Christian. And then he got encouraged to write and had his writings copied and spread quickly around the Western church. So he ended up with this vast platform with no great oversight or ongoing discipleship in what it means to follow Jesus. And then we took those ideas and got excited about them as the Protestant Reformation took place and wove them thoroughly into our enlightenment and colonialist thinking. And the result is that we got ourselves mightily confused when it comes to the body. Because our body theology in Western Christianity was developed in the midst of this syncretistic theology. And I kind of think it's time for actually lines up with scripture and what it means for us today. Consider, for example, what Paul thinks of bodies, not what you think Paul thinks of bodies. Those might be different things, but what he actually thinks about bodies. See, for Paul, the body is not an unholy thing to be dreaded, separated from, dismissed, diminished, or attacked, no matter what form it comes in. The body isn't rooted fundamentally in sinfulness, but rather the site of holy community and communion. I'll say that again. The body isn't the root of sinfulness, but is rather the site of holy community and communion. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 12. For just, we're just going to have a moment while it comes up on the screen, because I had a technical glitch on my laptop at the same time. There we go. Um, hopefully it's coming up there. Perfect timing. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The eye, sorry, again, some technical difficulties here with the screen, sorry. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many bodies, yet one member. Many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for, of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that are that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are collectively the body of Christ and individually members of it. This idea of the body is a place where diversity and contribution and value all reside in and through the body. This idea of the body is a place where our various human bodies join together to actively become the church embodied, serve as the nurturing, providing, outflowing, and rendering of Christ in the world. Far from being dismissed, our bodies and this idea of the body of Christ are central to the mission and vision of God. This idea of the body as the example of the church stands in stark contrast to Augustine's ideas. But Augustine wasn't the only church father in his day. As I said earlier, he got brought into the Western church uh, in the midst of a power struggle between East and West. And in the East, there were other church fathers who had wildly different views on bodies. One of those was Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, Gregory of Nazianzus was a bishop in Caesarea in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. We have a number of Gregory's orations from his time as bishop, and Oration 14 is one of them. An oration is a speech that was given outside of the church to the community at large in general. And in the newly Christianized Roman Empire, these orations were ways of helping to teach the broader mass of citizen about Christianity and about what it meant to live following Jesus in the first few years after the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And in the case of Oration 14, it was given first at a major festival, we think, and was a mix of sermon and fundraising event for the first Christian hospital. In it, Gregory talks about the bodies of lepers, some of the most damaged, disfigured bodies history has ever known. In his world, as in ours, such bodies were seen as significantly inferior, and not only inferior as bodies, but these inferior bodies were seen to therefore be inferior spiritually. Gregory objects to that thinking. Sorry. 
Using Paul's understanding of the body, Gregory suggests that not only are those with leprosy equal to those who are rich and healthy, but he reaches even further and suggests that their bodily experience is the sight and means of a powerful spiritual force, a force of grace that Gregory tells his able-bodied listeners they need in their lives if they are going to become all that God intended them to be. So they need to soak out, seek out, and be transformed through relationship with the lepers. You see, for Gregory, the body isn't the source of sin or how some elevated mind or spirit is negatively pulled from perfection or spiritual union from God. Rather, for Gregory, drawing directly on the passage we just read from Paul, the body, our individual bodies, but also so, and critically importantly, our bodies in relationship with each other's bodies is the place in which union with God becomes possible. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy place, something beautiful and honorable, not because they meet some criteria of ability or some external standard of beauty, but because God lives there. So what does all this have to do with disability? When we consciously or unconsciously hold to these ideas about the duality of mind and body and the idea of a perfect mind and body, it creates fear, vulnerability, and discomfort between the different bodies and minds around us. If perfection is the goal, then the inverse, imperfection, must be something to be avoided at all costs. If highly cognitive minds are what perfection looks like, then minds that develop slower or find certain tasks difficult to learn or can't keep up in school or remain effectively paused in their development at some age we deem less than their natural age become flawed, broken, damaged. If bodies are where sin is held, then bodies that are disfigured, limited, awkward, or unusual must be indications of greater amounts of sinfulness, either of the parent or the child or both. And if this is the case, then what happens if we get too close to these bodies and minds? Are they viruses, these disabilities? Will we catch their sin? On the one hand, that sounds like a very ancient way of thinking about it. We have medical explanations for how many dis for, for many disabilities and how they come to be. We know the processes by which oxygen starvation during birth works to create the brain damage that causes cerebral palsy. The way a third chromosome causes the changes in appearance, intellectual approach and heart formation commonly seen in Down syndrome children or the way a child's position in the womb can cause something as simple as clubfoot. On the other hand, individuals with disabilities and their families continue to testify to the ways in which family and friends drifted away or dropped out immediately after their diagnoses. 
They tell of the almost daily experiences of random strangers assuming that because they have a visible disability, they must need and want prayer for a healing that never comes. They tell of the ways in which they are segregated, left out, ignored, and made invisible in an effort for those with dis without disabilities to feel more comfortable. They tell of being bullied and made to feel shameful because of their differences. And they even tell of the ways in which they experience rejection and trauma within the church because of their disabilities. These ideas about the perfect mind and about the superiority of the mind over the body, these ideas of the body as the repository of sin, they have seeped so deeply into our general culture and into our Christian theology that we've almost stopped being aware of them. And that they are clearly still active and therefore still harming all of us across the abilities spectrum. They harm us when we have disabilities because they shut us out of the church, cut us off from meaningful friendships and needed community, and leave us lonely, isolated, neglected, and unseen. But they also harm us when we are still at least temporarily able-bodied because they cut us off from the wisdom of our own bodies, from the potential depth of relationships that might be available to us and from the way in which we as the body of Christ suffers when we say to the finger, liver or kneecap that is the person with a disability, I don't need you. What do we lose in that moment? How do we disable ourselves as the body of Christ in our discomfort or attempt to avoid the one called disabled? Just because our way of navigating the topic of disability has caused harm to us over the centuries doesn't mean the story has to or should end there. Because as Gregory of Nazianzus tells us, this body of Christ that we are part of is less than without the presence of all bodies and minds. As Gregory tells us, those bodies and minds that we think of as most incapable, as most sinful, as lowest, they may just be home to some of the deepest spiritual connections we'll ever have as human beings. Gregory actually goes as far as to say that the rich, able-bodied listener in front of him, that that person's salvation is tied up in their willingness to be connected directly in relationship with the lepers in their community. Can you imagine if we thought that was possible? Gregory's words may sound surprising to us today. Maybe you've seen the church offer charity to those with disabilities and inclusive ministry for those with special needs. Maybe you've never been in a church with someone with a disability. Maybe it's never even crossed your mind until now that someone might be missing. Or maybe you've just never thought about the fact that while there are about 22% of the population in Canada living with a disability, and and that number is true across most of the Western world. An audit in the Church of England back in 2005, the most recent numbers I could find for this stated that just 3.4% of their clergy lived with a disability and less than half of those had a visible disability. 
That means that there's a very high likelihood that this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon preached by someone in a wheelchair. But if Gregory is right, if relationship with the fully contributing disabled members of the body of Christ is necessary for the fullest integration of our salvation, then what are we as the church, the body of Christ missing out on because of this? What are we missing from full participation and integration in the body of Christ? We don't just have to take Gregory's words for it. They hearken back to those of Jesus. If we go back to the Gospels, we find a passage in Luke 14 where Jesus is at a banquet. He's watching the ways that people are vying for time and attention and space and food for one another, from one another. And he's worried about the power dynamics of what he sees as much as he's worried about who he doesn't see around him. And so he tells a story about a banquet, a story about a wealthy man who sends out invitations, letting people know he's going to throw a fancy banquet and inviting the rich, powerful people of his community to join him at his celebration. But when the time comes for the wedding banquet to take place, all of those people he's invited are busy and they all give the lamest of excuses. Sorry, I have to work. I'm busy with my spouse. There's, there's too much to do on the farm. Sorry, maybe next time. So the host sends out his servant to gather up all those who are disabled, the lame, the blind, the crippled, along with the poor, and gives them a seat at the table. And when the table still isn't all the way full, he sends his servants out to the highways and byways of the town he's in, to the homeless and the rejects and the unwanted and the lepers of his time, and he welcomes all of them at the banquet and celebrates together with them. And Jesus tells us that this is a story about what will happen at the resurrection. This is a story that tells us something about God's good idea of heaven. This is something that tells us what God's kingdom will look like as we pray for it to come in greater and greater measure on earth as it is in heaven. And really crucially, it's a story that says there's room at the table for those with disabilities as they are today. That those with disabilities are welcome at the table, that the presence of those with disabilities enriches the party around the table, that those with disabilities don't have to be fixed or healed or changed before they can take up space at the table, but rather they can come exactly as they are. As an aside, for those of you who like to have your theology meddled with, there is a strong argument to be made from this passage that although our pain and tears and death will be no more when we get to heaven, those of us with disabilities may still be disabled. Certainly, if Christ continues to bear the scars of the nails in his hands, feet, and the spear wound in his side on his resurrected body, I don't expect my 37 scars on my body are going anywhere, or that the misshapen bones in my foot or the cellular processes that make me require a wheelchair will necessarily change when I get to heaven. Now, whether that sits well with 
you or leaves you squirmy, here's the thing. If disabled bodies and minds are welcome at the table, if Jesus assigns them value and worth as co-celebrants with God at the banquet table of the resurrection, if Paul declares bodies to be good and to be the space in which the church, God's representative on earth, is to become, if Father Gregory asserts the need for us to honor and uphold the bodies of even the most broken in our communities, if we want to love Jesus well and even grow and mature as followers of Christ, then we have some work to do as a church today. So to finish tonight, I'm going to suggest three ideas to get that work started. And then we've got some time for some conversations and questions and pushback and uncertainty, hopefully, if I didn't talk too long. Suggestion number one. The first path into this shift is found in coming back into your own body, making peace again with the body you live in. For some people reading the, a book like Hilary McBride's The Wisdom of the Body that Nikayla was working off of in part in the first sermon in this series will be enough to help you begin to reconnect with your body. For others of you, this might be the beginning of a years long quest to find healing and restoration in the relationship you have with your body. Be gentle with yourself as you consider this process. Talk to trusted friends and community members. Invite God into the timing and pace and approach and design of this process for you. But know this, it will be very difficult to have a good relationship with other people's different bodies and minds when you are struggling to have a good relationship with your own. A second path into this work, and a good one for those who have a decent relationship with their body already, but still think of bodies and minds, emotions and spirits as very separate, distinct parts and possibly still prioritize mind and spirit over body and emotions is to deliberately choose to focus on embodied forms of spiritual discipline for a season. So often our spiritual disciplines remain exclusively or almost exclusively cerebral. We pray, memorize scripture, read our Bibles, meditate and so on. But what would happen if for a season you chose instead to spend that time walking, breathing, planting a garden, Volunteering with a charity to help people move out of shelters and into housing. Sitting with dementia patients and holding their hand for an hour once a week or any number of spiritual disciplines that intentionally reconnect your spirit to your body. If we want to get beyond mental ascent to actual transformation, we need to engage with this material directly through our bodies. A third path into this work is to consider what it would mean as a community to extend not only welcome, inclusion, and belonging, but full-on embrace to those with disabilities in your community. For those with some disabilities, this will require making sure that you have accessible entrances and accessible washrooms. Others might require a sign language interpreter or at least closed captions. Others might need printed materials in braille and still others may need to be able to fidget and move and make sounds to be a part of a space you are used to having people sit quietly within. 
These things will allow the individual in question to be able to come through your door, to feel welcome perhaps and possibly even included. But for us to get to embrace, we need to move deeper than that. We need to assume that the Holy Spirit is living and moving in this person's life, that the Holy Spirit has gifted this person in the same way that you and I have been gifted. We need to assume that as a member of the body of Christ, they have been gifted by the Spirit for the purpose of building up the body. And so we need to go beyond just including these individuals in the deep relationships we are building as a community, including them in meals you have together and the small groups that you, you form around, in, including them in work days and service projects, to finding ways to embrace the wisdom of God embedded and embodied throughout their disabled bodies and minds into your worship, into your wrestling with scripture, sure in the knowledge that they belong in the body and that God will bless the body through them and that we disable the body of Christ when we fail to remember this truth. Before we go to questions, let me just pray. Creator of bodies, we thank you that you made us more than just spirits and minds, but gave us bodies that you called very good. We confess that it has been easy to rename what you called good as less than and in our syncretism to reject your gift to us. Creator of bodies, would you heal our relationship with our own bodies? Would you reconnect the broken links between our bodies and spirits, our minds and emotions? And as we are healed, may we remember that the body of Christ is not limited to those bodies and minds we deem good enough but that your power is worked out in the weakness of disabled bodies and minds in ways we may not yet be able to comprehend. May you be honored and glorified as your kingdom comes in greater and greater measure on earth in our physical bodies as it is in heaven. Amen. We have a few minutes for questions. So for those of you present on Zoom, if you have a question, could you type that question into the chat box? Uh, and then those of you here, you could raise your hand. Now, my phone died while watching the Zoom. So I might need, like, Glendon, if there's a question in the chat and I can't see, I don't know if the chat can see too, but you might have to shout it out. I'm sure Heather can see it in the chat. Okay, good. We can see the chat box. So um, go ahead. If you have a, a question in the room, raise your hand. Okay, uh, Heather, Kara, uh, who led worship for us tonight, has a question. Do you want to take the mic? Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, hi. Um, so I led worship tonight. Can you see me? No. Okay. I cannot see you. No. But that's okay. I led worship tonight, and I always start worship when I remember by asking people to stand if you're able. And tonight, for the first time ever, I felt mortified when I said that. And I'm just wondering, what what should I say? Because I felt like that's probably wrong. Um, and I guess I say it to invite people to, like, show up to worship. Because often I find if, if I'm sitting, I'm not engaging. And we are a church community where for a lot of the time, for many years, people didn't sing with me when I led worship, and they would be more likely to if they could. 
So I'm just wondering, how do I, as a worship leader, say something that doesn't um, marginalize people, but also welcomes people to join me? Yeah, that's my That's question. a great question, Kara. And, and also great job of identifying it uh, because it's one of these things that people say because they are trying to be inclusive. And as you say, you don't, you don't notice that there's a problem with it until uh, there's somebody in the space for whom it might be awkward. So I prefer to say, come into your bodies as you join us for worship and make it clear that that might mean sitting or standing or lying down or moving or going to the back where you have more space or whatever it needs to do, whatever it needs to look like. But by, by inviting people to come into their bodies to em embody their worship of God, uh, I think that that gives way more space for however people need to do that. Uh, Heather, that is such a good question. I wonder, Kara, if you would type up what you just learned and send it to the other worship leaders. <laughs> if you had time, if you wrote that down, that would be helpful, I think. Oh, I see a question in the chat. Um, Chris says, beautiful message for all of us, Heather. Thank you. I'm curious what you, your relationship is to texts like John 9, where the disciples assume a man is born with a disability because of sin, and Jesus responds that this man was born blind, so the glory of God might be displayed in him. And that divinity, that divine glory is then evidenced through a healing release from his disability. Um, yeah, from Chris. Thank you. So the question of healing in, in the disabled, uh, the question of disability in the healing texts of the Gospels is one that takes time to sit with. Um, and I'm not going to give it full justice in a quick answer here, but it's definitely something uh, that's worth exploring more deeply. Where I quickly will go to with it is this. Um, it is clear that Jesus's healing miracles in the gospel were part of declaring that Jesus was the son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he had come, that the kingdom had come and was beginning to enter into the world um, through Christ's incarnation. And that was demonstrated in multiple uh, signs and wonders, including many healings that happened. The problem is that we extrapolate from those few healings in the Gospels to this idea that we somehow get to that God had as God's best plan that all bodies and minds be healed automatically. And that any separation from that or, or going off in another direction from that was contrary to uh, what God intended with the kingdom. Some denominations go down that road more strongly than others. Um, I come from a denomination that has a healing uh, element to its core four principles. So this is something that we've talked a lot about. Um, and this is, this is where I land with it in terms of today. What do we do with it today? I think that Christ's resurrected 
unhealed body is a sign that we are not all to expect healing. I think equally that uh, Christ's healing of the man born blind in John 9, of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, of uh, Jairus's daughter, of, of all of these passages is a sign that there are ways in which disability creates brokenness in the kingdom and God wants to heal that. I have experienced God's healing in my body and in my mind over the years. And yet I am still a neurodiverse and physically disabled woman. Our job as Christians today is to live in that tension, to live in the complexity of that. Not just of the, of the soon but not yet, but of the not always what we expect. Healing, the most, one of the most healing things that has happened to me in the last five years is that I got a power wheelchair. That power wheelchair has opened up so many opportunities for my life and has taken me from being stuck in bed, almost incapable of functioning, um, to being able to do a degree and preach and become a licensed pastor. Um, and my body has not been made better, but God's kingdom is coming a little bit more in greater and greater measure. I trust and pray through the work that I'm doing. And so I think that's what I'm going to give you for today, but it's a really good question and we should keep on digging into its discomfort. All right, uh, that uh, really resonated with me. It's so beautiful. Um, I just want to have a church budget for buying power wheelchairs for people who need them. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Thank you. Um, holy. <laughs> um, can you imagine? We perhaps have time for one more question if something else has come up for, for any of you. Um, okay, then I, I would like to ask you this, Heather, um, as a final question. You mentioned in your sermon um, people with invisible disabilities. And I think uh, having an invisible disability um, brings a unique set of challenges because it's hard to sort of advocate for the community to make space for you when the people in the community look at you and don't think that you need that. And I know there are a few people at Awaken um, who have quite significant uh, invisible disabilities. And so I wondered if you could offer a word of encouragement or uh, just a blessing on um, those members of our community uh, who can feel isolated in that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had fun with the story of Hannah for a paper in December, and I turned it into a sermon uh, of encouragement for those with invisible disabilities. Uh, and I will send that link to you, Nikayla, if I haven't already, and you can share it uh, if it would be a specific encouragement. But um, two, two things. One, to those of you who do not see yourself as invisibly disabled, be aware of the fact that disabilities come in in all sorts of shapes, sizes, um, 
and experiences. And invisible disability can be everything from pain to energy levels, to migraines, to epilepsy, diabetes uh, at certain levels can be a, a very disabling um, condition in terms of just how careful it needs to be monitored. Um, illnesses like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is also sometimes called ME, um, and, and now long COVID, which is in that same category, um, which can limit somebody's energy window to the point where they may have minutes in the day where they could sit up, um, much less um, talk or write or do other things. So disability can come in this very broad experience. And I think that the two things that make invisible disability so hard is that in every single aspect of a person's life, they are faced with um, incredulity and uh, disbelief about what they are talking about, what they are living. And so the first encouragement I would give you to you as a congregation is to make a space where you believe and trust and hold with high regard people's stories of their own embodied experiences. That means that if somebody tells you that they have a chemical sensitivity to perfume, that means that they have a migraine if they enter a room where people are wearing perfume, then you think about whether or not everyone in your congregation might be willing to switch to perfume-free uh, soaps and laundry detergents uh, and uh, body products so that they can join together as a worshiping community safely with you. That's just one example, but it's, it's that sort of thinking that honors the lived experience of the person with the invisible disability that allows them to then have a space, a place, an opportunity to be part of the body of Christ more fully. And then to those of you with invisible disabilities, I also have some of those. And so I resonate with the challenges of what can be seen and what can't be seen. And the ways in which what is unseen is unparalleled in terms of its challenge. And so I want to remind you of the one of the miracles in the story of Hannah, real quick. So the story of Hannah is in 1 Samuel chapter one, and Hannah is barren, we know that. And I kind of reimagine her as uh, having epilepsy. It explains some of the symptoms and some of what Eli the priest sees. And there's this moment in the text where Hannah has gone and she has bared her soul before God in front of the temple. And she is praying out of all of her misery and anguish. And Eli, the priest says, stop, you're drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? Go back to your tent. You're, you're, God doesn't want to hear your prayers. And somehow Hannah has the courage to say, I am not drunk. I am pouring out my heart before the Lord. I think that's a miracle. 
And I invite you to hold on to Hannah's miracle of being able to speak up for yourself. And then I invite you to hold on to the second miracle of that story, which is that Eli, the priest, Eli, the incapable of seeing, stops and sees. And Eli not only stops and sees, but affirms that God has seen. And so I want to encourage you that what is invisible to those around you, God has seen. I want to encourage you that what feels impossible to fix, God is already present with you and alongside of you. And I want you to encourage you in this space that is developing and trying to become the community that God would have it to be. I want to encourage you to hold on to Hannah's miraculous uh, uh, clothes and follow in her footsteps and be honest about what you need. Find ways, trusted people, that you can say, this is what I need. This is what my body looks like. This is what my mind looks like. This is what you cannot see. Let me reveal it to you. That's a scary thing to do. It's vulnerable. It's really hard. But that is part of what we have to do. And it's the first step for us to be able to be seen fully as we are and accepted fully as we are. Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful answer. <laughs> beautiful story about Hannah. Um, we're going to, uh, I, I would like, I, I noticed um, Nicole had a question about recommended theologians and I have had the privilege of interacting with Heather over Twitter and um, Heather is actually currently working on an annotated bibliography uh, uh, resources. So I'm going to, after church tonight, uh, email Heather and ask uh, if you could recommend some books or podcasts for Awakeners to go deeper. And I will make sure that list goes out in the alert this week and post it on our, our Facebook page. So um, I'll be contacting you soon, Heather. Um, I just want to say thank you, Heather, from all of us here at Awaken, all of us in the room and those on the Zoom chat. Um, folks on Zoom, feel free to add a thank you there in the chat. But this has been a huge deal for all of us. I'm not sure she would hear our applause, but we could give applause for Uh, I know that um, earlier in the sermon, Heather had said this was probably the first sermon we had heard from someone using a wheelchair. And I know for me that was true. Um, so that's incredibly uh, convicting and powerful. And I hope to learn more from, from Heather uh, and, and as a church to, to learn from one another. So thank you, Heather. We take communion as a church every Sunday. Uh, and we are going to go into a time of communion. Uh, I need help from at least one person. I'm looking at you, Sarah. I quickly filled a few more cups in the front. As people come up and take and this table becomes empty, would you help me replenish? Just because there's a few more people here than cups out here. Um, if you would like someone to bring the communion to you instead of expecting you to come forward and get your own, we're learning, we're learning, you could raise your hand and I bet you one of these young, lovely Hubert children would bring you communion and um, we would be happy to celebrate it with you that way, if that's you. So just raise your hand, it, it's no problem. Uh, and we'll do that. But otherwise, I just um, will read this prayer and the words of Paul in Corinthians about the table and we will take communion together. 
So from the Every so Moment Holy Book, moment book um, this is a, a liturgy for the labors of community, a good prayer as we seek to do a very embodied thing, take communion together, the body of Christ for this body of mine and this body that I'm a part of, Awakened Church. So this liturgy, this prayer goes like this. Our lives are so small, O Lord. Our vision so limited. Our courage so frail. Our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. You alone, O God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit, have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts to one another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, O Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious workings of your Spirit, who weaves all things together toward a redemption more good and glorious than we yet have eyes to see or courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O Lord. Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained for this community, flower in winsome and beautiful foretaste of those greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen. Thank you, those of you on Zoom, for joining with us. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all of us need food and water, and it is an honor to come and be nourished bodily by not just food and water, but the body and blood of our Messiah, our Jesus. So, come, loving God, loving God, bless us as we, us, as we take part in this sacred, in this ancient sacred healing ceremony, healing ceremony um, that binds um, us together binds as, us your body. as your body. Thank you for pouring out your body for our bodies and your body for us as we become uh, joined, together joined together into one together new community, community that looks like that Jesus looks like and Jesus bears the hand bears and the feet and, and, and the love of Jesus. And so, uh, bless us now, bless I pray, us now, as, we pray as we connect, connect in, this in this ancient way with your people. In the name of Jesus, I pray.